Pelicans. The guy is 10 for 10. That's a Pelicans franchise record for makes without a miss. And it's just coming so easy. What's up, guys? Welcome to Birdwatch. I am Christian Clark, the Pelicans beat writer for NOLA.com and The Advocate. On a very chilly Monday morning, uh, I was looking out the window at my new-ish Lemon and Satsuma trees and basically just saying, you can do it. You can do it, babies. <laughs> More like a frozen Monday by New Orleans standards. Yeah, it's not great. I, I didn't move back to the South to have to deal with this. I didn't move back to the South to have to ever scrape my windshield again. I threw my stupid windshield scraper in the trash when I left Denver and said, hopefully I'll, I'll never have to have one of these again. Uh, it's terrible. I think I think scraping your windshield is like a bottom three activity in life. Yeah, but that was a mistake because you like I could have warned you that there were going to be instances where you would have to scrape your windshield at least at least once in your time living here. And when you own a windshield scraper in New Orleans and everything does freeze, you can like rent it out for an immense <laughs> profit. So uh, next time you visit home or go back to Denver for whatever reason, pick one up and uh, just hold it. It's like a yeah. stock that you know is going <laughs> to bounce. <laughs> I can just go on St. Claude and be like, got $10 a pop to use right. this baby. Yeah. All right. You got well, people out there with their credit cards. <laughs> Doesn't work quite as well. That's pretty good hustle. Um, Jeff, let's get into the basketball. To quote a great man, it was all good just a week ago. What happened? I mean, we were feeling so good after you know a bunch of games at home, those back-to-back wins over Memphis and Houston. Yes. And then they go out on the road for a four-game road trip. Um, they give up 25 threes to the Bulls. They give up 25 threes to the Mavericks. 50, 50 in a two-game stretch. And then they lose to the Detroit Pistons, one of the worst teams in the NBA, a team that is kind of doing an artful tank this year. Like, they're not they're not really trying to, like, be a competitive playoff team this year. Um, I don't know what happened. It's, uh, it, it's not looking good. It, it feels awful right now. Um, what is just kind of your read on these past three games here? Well, yeah, one of the one thing that is definitely not ice cold is anyone who's taking a shot against the Pelicans over the last week <laughs> because it just they just can't miss. You know, I you you, you look at any NBA season, there's always going to be uh, you know ebbs and flows, pe- teams playing above their weight, and then kind of regressing to the mean and. You imagine now over the course of a season, it will even out. But it really does feel like the Pelicans have just run into a lot of hot shooting teams. And there's only so much you can do. You know, Zach Levine woke up that morning, you know, hitting 30-footers and <laughs> never stopped. Uh, Kobe White, who has never been a great shooter, couldn't miss in that game. Um, and it's it's always tough. You know, you're going to lose games in the NBA because teams just shoot the lights out. And it's, it's an inevitability. Uh, the problem with the Pelicans is it just seems to happen way too often to be coincidence. But I think that there is some merit to the fact that they're just not a good road team. And it's, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world, even as weird as that sounds, because when you're talking about a young team, it's not particularly surprising that they're not as good on the road as they are at home, even in this weird situation where home court advantage isn't quite the advantage that it would be under normal circumstances. But you're looking at a team that is seven and five at home and four and 10 on the road. And they have looked 
like a lottery team on the road. They looked like a team that is not a playoff contender on the on the road. But at home, they have held down. They've beaten teams like the Bucks. They've beaten the Suns, and and they just look like a more cohesive, cogent uh, basketball organization. Then they get on the road, and and you just kind of just put your hands up in the air, like how do you fall asleep on defense as often as you do? How do you shoot as inconsistently as you do, especially late in games? Uh, and in the second half, after seeming they seem to start very well and then just fall off a cliff after the first quarter. It happened against the Jazz. It happened against the Pistons. Both games, they scored 40 points in the first quarter and then, you know, lost by double digits. <laughs> and and it's it's incredibly frustrating. Um, but it's it's at least an issue that you can look at and say, okay, this is a team that is led by a lot of young players and needs to learn how to be competitive on the road. A lot of good teams struggle on the road. You just have to be a, you have to be a 500 basketball team on the road to make the playoffs, in my opinion. Uh, and they are not that right now. Yeah, the home road thing is super weird. I mean, it, it's very, you know, they had that six-game road trip earlier this year that was, you know, arguably the toughest road trip in team history. I mean, losses on that trip to the Lakers, the Clippers, the Jazz twice, those are understandable. I mean, this is a young team still figuring out how to win. Like, that's completely excusable. What's inexcusable is losing to the Timberwolves, the Pistons, the Bulls away from home. I mean, you just you just can't go 0-3 against that caliber team, even if you're not at your home arena. Um, <laughs> you know, just looking at the opponent's three-point thing real quick, uh, the Pelicans are giving up 16.2 threes per game. The highest ever three-pointers allowed per game prior to the season was 14. I believe. So it's like two full threes more than, than what the Pelicans are allowing now. I've heard a lot of different theories about, you know, how a three point defense can be this bad. Um, you know, I've, I've watched all these rewatch all these games on this road trip and, and, you know, hit up all the people I trust about shooting. And I think there are a few different things going on. Um, one of the things that I, I think is legit. And I think, you know, we might look back on the season and think is the Pelicans might've just picked like the worst possible year to try to put in a defense that limits shots at the rim as opposed, as opposed to three point shots. Um, Stephen Gundy in his career has had a lot of success playing this way. I mean, his track record as a good defensive coach is very, very real. I mean, prior to the season, he'd been a head coach for 11 seasons. He'd never, not one time, overseen a bottom 10 defense. I mean, his teams had been in the top 10, I think in eight of those 11 years, like playing this way really worked until now. And, you know, I think part of it is the Pelicans just, just don't have good defenders. I mean, I think part, part of it that I believe is, I think three point percentage is up league wide in part because there aren't fans in the stands. Like there's kind of the feel of we're just playing in sort of a, like a, a glorified pickup game. And it's just, I think it's just easier to, to knock down threes when you don't feel the pressure from a hostile crowd. I first saw Jake Reitz kind of lay this out on Twitter of, of why, you know, three point percentage is up so much league wide and, you know, why teams that allow a lot of threes are, are struggling on the defensive end this year. Um, you know, those are, those are a couple of things I look at as to why the defense is, is so, so bad. 
Yeah, and I think he pointed out, you know, the fans is as a big part of that, not having fans in the stands. And you saw this in the bubble, too. You know, it's not the first time we've seen this kind of NBA environment that is very uh, that has very little impact from things going on outside the, you know, the perimeter of the court. Right. Uh, the game against the Clippers in the bubble, the Pelicans just got steamrolled by a team that hit a billion three-pointers. It doesn't feel like a billion three-pointers anymore after watching what happened over the last week. But that's a similar similar scenario. Uh, I don't think the, you know, mini Lexus showroom the Bulls had beyond the baseline uh, is affecting the shooters all that much unless, you know, you put someone in there and have them honk the horn, which I think uh, (laughs) is coronavirus safe. So maybe we should consider it. Uh, Maybe at the blender, (laughs) they have people actually holding blenders on the baseline. I think that would be uh, something that we, you know, some synergy that that we could include there. But yeah, it's um, it's it's strange to see a defense just consistently allow <laughs> incredible shooting, um, and I, the, you have to kind of look for um, kind of next level explanations as to like why is this suddenly happening? Uh, why are teams just not missing shots anymore? Because you know you see it throughout the course of any game. You know, not all wide open shots go in, but it feels like they do these days. It feels like if you leave somebody open, they can't miss. Yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable. The Pelicans, prior to this road trip, had never given up 23s in back-to-back games. They give up 25 in back-to-back games in Chicago and Dallas. I mean, that is an incredible, unbelievable jump. Um, Chicago set their franchise record for three-pointers before the end of the third quarter. (laughs) Just completely insane. I mean, Kristaps Porzingis was like, pulling up from rural Texas in that game and like making it look like it was nothing in Dallas. Um, You know, I think the Pelicans defensive scheme, the way they play, they help really, really hard. um, And that forces them into situations where they have to like scramble long distances. I don't think they're good at that. Like I think at times Zion Williamson and Brandon Ingram have struggled at that, but I'll just say this. I don't, I don't know like that the Pelicans would even be like, a so-so defensive team if they're playing like an opposite defensive system where they they never helped and they only worried about the three-point line and just stayed one-on-one against their man. I'm not sure what system they could play and be good right now. I mean, that that Detroit game, that was not really about scheme at all in my mind. I mean, that was just about players not bringing effort and, and just not playing that well. I mean, how many wide-open backdoor cuts did the Pelicans give up in that game? Um, Stan Van Gundy said after the game that only two of the 17 threes they gave up were scheme related. I mean, I don't like it, it wasn't very many. I agree with him. Like I'd have, I don't know if it was like two, but I mean, I think that game in particular was like, it was just more about effort. I mean, you, there was a play in the third quarter where Eric Bledsoe got back to our cut and Steven Adams guy, like whizzed a pass right next to right to the line, right for layup. And like, you saw Steven Adams just like kind of lose it. Like he swore and threw his hands up in the air I mean, if Steven Adams is like losing it on the court, that's that's a sign of where things are at. Yeah, and that's some pretty good live stack keeping from Stan to know <laughs> off the top of his head. <laughs> Two of seventeen. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I'm not sure I buy that uh, that low yeah. of a number specifically, but I, I think it is a lot on the road. You'd look at a team that seems to, especially as road trips kind of extend. They don't bring the level of energy throughout the game that you that you need to win games, and and that again, I, I go back to this is just a team that is not a good road team for whatever reason. Whether it's you know a difficulty kind of getting uh, up to speed on the road, if it's a difficulty of 
you know, getting out of the gates the way you need to. I don't know, but um, it's it's an issue. And uh, I know Stan mentioned after the game that you know rotation changes are probably coming. I don't know what that means specifically. You have to imagine it's going to be at the guard spot, at the point guard spot specifically with Kyra, who looks every bit of a good pick at, uh, at, at number 13, the way he's played. Uh, maybe he gets more run there. I don't know. But um, one stat that I have been looking at, and it's the most unscientific stat possible, but I think it's incredibly telling. In games where the Pelicans have held their opponent to 110 points or fewer, which is a reasonable NBA score, you... If you're playing confident NBA defense, you should be able to keep a team in the 110-point range. Uh, they're 7-0. They have not lost a game this season that they have held their opponent to 110 points. Uh, in games where they have allowed 111 or more, they are 4-15. Now, that stat is a bit randomized because they've lost three games this season where they have allowed exactly 111 points, which is actually kind of amazing. Uh, but I think it's still a good kind of point of demarcation where Yes, when the Pelicans play defense, they can win basketball games. They are not going to win a lot of games where they're trying to uh, outscore a team that is in the 120-point range or higher. It's just not going to happen. This is not that type of offense. They need to be able to be competitive on the defensive side of the ball to win games. And they have not been, especially in the second half of games on the road this year. Yeah, I mean, right now they're they're tied for second to last in defensive efficiency. I mean, only, only the Sacramento Kings statistically have a worse defense right now. Um, you know, without without looking it up, I would guess that um, like three or four of those games where they allowed uh, fewer than 110 came in the first five games. I mean, I think that's part of what makes all this so frustrating is the Pelicans came out of training camp defending pretty well. I mean, they they wanted to take on, you know, this gritty identity. And it was kind of working at the very beginning of the year. And it just... You know, there was some slippage, some slippage, and now here we are more than a third of the way into the season. And, I mean, the Pelicans, like, they, they couldn't guard a parked car. I mean, it's it's crazy. Um, you know, that was something that Stan Van Gundy brought up after the loss in Detroit was just the lack of practice time. Um, you know, I don't I don't want to say that's an excuse. I mean, I, I, think it's, I think it's legit, but, like, that's not something that he— he was not willing to go there before that loss in, in Detroit that much, I don't think. But, I mean, I do think that's I think that's real. Like, the Pelicans are trying to play a very different way than they were defensively last season. I mean, I think the style and the scheme that they're playing, it requires great communication. Like, it requires, like, long rotations. Um, I think it, it can be complicated. Um, I, I think it could work. It just... It's just hard to do, and it seems like you know without like that adequate practice time, they just they just can't do it really. There is you know the when you look at kind of the trends of the season and you see all these games they have lost, you know that when they win games, it seems to come after some period of a layoff, right? They had a good start to the season, they had the training camp, and they were able to get ready. Then it kind of as it wore on, they just seemed to uh, regress and regress and regress. But then they had that kind of three-day impromptu break before taking on the Wizards and the Bucks at home. They won both of those games. They had a back-to-back against the Rockets, and they played terribly, and they lost. Uh, but they kind of held that held serve, especially on the defensive side of the ball, with that four-game winning streak. And now you see them back on the road and playing 
every other day and it seems like those rotations aren't there the energy isn't there and I mean if you want to say that that the practice is clearly an issue I think that that's fair um any young team needs practice time and uh they're just not able to get it but that can't be the story of the season because this is the season this is what you have if that's an issue you have to find a way to fix it because it's not going to change um so it I'm willing to accept that as an excuse for why it's bad, but it can't be uh, the excuse for why this season has tanked because uh, there's a long way to go and you just got to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Like tough sledding. Sorry, everyone is dealing with that, um, you know, lack of practice time. I don't think that's what, you know, allowed you to get beat like 100 times in backdoor cuts against Detroit. I don't think that's what prevented, you know, Detroit in an inbounds play throwing it right to Brandon Ingram's man in the corner and Brandon Ingram just falling asleep on a baseline out of bounds and his guy hitting a three. I mean, those are, those are just mental mistakes that like, you know, that, you know, stuff that you should. And these guys have been preventing since they started playing basketball in grade school. I mean, that's just the type of stuff that can happen. Um, As far as just the general like volatility of the season and how, you know, like everything seems to to change so drastically from week to week, league wide, not just with the Pelicans. I thought Dan Devine put it really well in in the Ringer earlier this week. Uh, he said, "Damn near every team seems like it's one good week away from considering itself considering itself a sleeper playoff team, and one bad week away from putting a blanket over its head, pouring a forgetting Sarah Marshall sized bowl of depression cereal, and watching Kate Cunningham highlights with the lights turned off." <laughs> Kate Cunningham highlights. Yeah, pretty I much. I mean, I pretty much. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it, look at the Eastern Conference too. I mean, there are no teams that are successful right now in the Eastern Conference besides maybe the 76ers who have as many questions as anybody. Uh, the Celtics are 500. Celtics are 13 and 13. Uh, the Hornets are in the sixth seed at 13 and 15. The Raptors 12 and 15. Heat 11 and 15. I mean, these are you know. Three of those teams were deep playoff te- uh, made deep playoff runs last year, and none of them are f- above 500. And that's that's wild. Even the Bucks are 16 and 11. You know, everyone seems to be struggling. Um, so, you know, while y- you might be able to make the argument that there's a little more parity this year in the NBA from top to bottom, and I think that to an extent that is true. You don't have kind of the juggernauts outside of maybe the Laker, the top three of the Western Conference. Um, and for the NBA, I think that's a good thing. But yeah, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that this is the season that there's a lot of really good teams that don't look like really good teams. Yeah, so let's talk about um, some potential changes to the rotation. You you briefly brought this up. Um, this was the first time this season that, that Stan Van Gundy has acknowledged that, okay, maybe it is time to, to look at how we're doling out minutes. I mean, they've... They've stuck with this starting lineup of Lonzo Ball, Eric Bledsoe, Brandon Ingram, Zion Williamson, Stephen Adams, um, you know, pretty much the whole way here. The only time they've disrupted it is if someone has been out of the lineup. I think on Tuesday in Memphis, there's a chance, uh, and, you know, I'm not saying certainly, but a chance that we see a different starting lineup when all those guys are healthy. Um, You know, personally, the guy I look at where there could be a change is Eric Bledsoe. Um, he was awful in that game against Detroit. I mean, I don't like, I don't know what was going on, but 
I mean, offensively, he would only take threes and he wasn't hitting. All nine of his shots were threes. He went one of nine, just wouldn't really drive the ball. You know, you might say he got to the free throw line five times. Three of those free throws were on like the very first possession of the game where he got fouled on a three and then he goes one for three from the line. I mean, it was a non-factor offensively. I think, you know, defensively, he was guilty more than anyone of just like falling asleep and getting backdoor cut. We already talked about the play where Steven Adams just like kind of lost it because that happened to Eric Bledsoe in the third quarter. Um, so I think that is potentially, you know, the move they could make if they wanted to make a move. And who knows if they will. I mean, I don't I don't think Stan Gundy, you know, was saying that, yes, we certainly will. I think he was saying it's something we'll take a look at. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's not Brandon Ingram. It's not Zion Williamson. <laughs> You're not taking Steven Adams out of the starting lineup. So it's got to come at the guard spots uh, one way or the other. Um I don't think that they're going to make a complete change of the backcourt uh, and one, you know, fell swoop. So, yeah, you're probably looking at either Lonzo Ball or Eric Bledsoe coming out and someone taking over there. Um, I still refuse to believe that J.J. Redick has forgotten how to play basketball. And to me, I wouldn't hate to see him thrown in to get those starting two minutes. I really wouldn't because, you know, maybe that's something you need to get him going. If this team is going to be competitive and he's not traded, they need him to be out there. They need him to be a shooter. They need him to be a threat. And, you know, I don't know if maybe getting in the starting rotation will help wake him up a little bit and make, uh, got to change something because it's not working. (laughs) That bench sniper role is not existing right now. And I wouldn't hate to see that. You know, obviously there's, there's other guys. You have uh, Nikhil, you have Kyra. um, But I would be surprised if Kyra gets the starting role right now. I, I think there's been a clear uh, intent to kind of bring him along uh, in a manageable way. Um, but he's been good. I mean, yeah, he's been, he's been great. Um, we saw in the second half against Detroit, Nikhil Alexander Walker got those minutes as kind of the ninth man. Um, they didn't really play JJ Redick as much. Nikhil, Nikhil, it's like great play, terrible play, great, ta- great play, terrible play. I feel like that's been the story of a season. Um, but just just staying on, you know, potential lineup changes they could make. I think, and this is just my gut feel, this isn't reporting, but I think the two changes they could make are throw Josh Hart in there for for Eric Bledsoe. That would that would make some sense to me. You know, get your your um probably your best wing defender, um, you know, versatile guy, um, one of your two most hard-nosed guys on the roster, him and Steven Adams, I would say, you know. Uh, a little bit of a bigger role. He's already playing a ton of minutes to be clear, but just start the game with him. And then maybe they could go Kyra. Um, I'm kind of with you. Like that would, that would surprise me if they just like threw Kyra in there already. Um, But he's been unbelievable, man. I mean, that, that five minute stretch to end the third quarter, like that kind of made me sit up in my chair because the Pistons, they kind of tried to punk him a little bit. Like Dennis Smith Jr., really got into him. He forced a backcourt violation. Like they were, they were clearly like jawing at each other. Um, and Kyra didn't back down at all. He forced two turnovers. The play where he stood up Jeremy Grant in the post and just ripped the ball away from him and took it the other way and shot the layup that got cold for goaltend. I mean, that made me like raise my eyebrows. I was like, oh my God, like this dude, 19 years old, 170. And he's just like standing Jeremy Grant up in the post. I mean, I thought it was Really impressive. I mean, clearly he's got a lot of game, but uh, I think he's got some fire too, which 
you know, you love to see. I mean, I wish I wish some more guys on this roster uh, were playing with that fire right now. Yeah, my so I kind of look at when I when you look at point guards on a on an NBA team, I look at them kind of the same way that I look at quarterbacks on an NFL team. When when you're considering making them the starter, making them kind of the leading point guard, the the one, uh, and to me, that's a situation where if you're going to do that, you need to be 100% confident that this that player A is ready because what you can't do is say, okay, we're going to try this out, and then it doesn't work, and you pull the rug out from under him, and then all the confidence goes uh, into the seller. And as a point guard, confidence is incredibly important, probably more important than any other position, right? You need to be commanding the offense. You need to have faith in yourself and the team. And you, the situation you want to avoid is just undermining the confidence of a young player. Because, again, this kid is 19 years old. This kid is a guy who you want to be the star of the future but you just don't want to uh stunt that growth that you've seen in the second unit as you brought along his minutes by giving him too much too soon um and and that's and i think that's a lot easier to do than than most people realize you know it'd be, it's really easy to say oh yeah get him in there let him play 35 minutes and see what happens uh but if what happens is uh very very bad then that's going to be the lasting image of you know what he takes away from it. And it can turn toxic really quick in that situation. And it can also turn toxic really quick if you start benching veteran players for a young guy. Um, and that's where I get a little you know hesitant to just yank Eric Bledsoe and say, you're on the bench now. He's a guy who has, in the past, um, not taken kindly to being de-emphasized in an offense. And I don't know. Uh, you know, this is just not me speaking of Eric Bledsoe now, but any veteran player, you run the risk of creating, you know, fracturing a locker room when you start doing things like that. And I think that's that's a big reason why Stan is not just jumping over the barrel to get to that point, because it can get ugly really quickly uh, in, in the NBA when you need guys to be playing for each other. You know, it's a team defense is an important thing. And uh, it when guys aren't committed to it, you can see it. I, I think you bring up a really good point there. And I don't think, you know, Stan nor anybody who follows this team closely ever thought the Pelicans would be in this position where we're even talking about having to um, diminish the roles of Eric Bledsoe and JJ Redick. I mean, coming into the year, you know, we're, I, I feel like all of us were just writing in pencil, like, yeah, Eric Bledsoe, I mean, that's one of your starters in the backcourt, pencil him in for 32 minutes a night. JJ Redick, like dependable reserve, even if, you know, he's a little getting a little long in the tooth. He struggles on defense. He's not that quick. Like he's going to be up above 40% from three and at least give you that. Um, I think both of those guys have been kind of disappointment so far. And I think you're right that like Stan Van Gundy has, you know, person, like he has to worry about that particular part of like losing the locker room. And, and, you know, if you make a major move like this, yeah, there's a, I think there's very much potential where things get even worse than they already are. I mean, the record really isn't even that bad right now. It's just it's just how things feel. I mean, like the morale is so much lower it seems like than than the record is if that makes sense. This is always the thing that I brought up whenever people got uh, you know, over the hill about yelling fire gentry as loud as they could. One of the things that he did incredibly well despite so many things happening badly <laughs> was that locker room never fractured. That locker room always 
seemed upbeat. They lost 13 games in a row last year, and I still don't think the morale was as low as it is right now. Um, and and that is a talent in and of itself. You call guys players, coaches. You know, those are the type of guys who uh, you know succeed in situations where they have to manage you know player emotions more than uh, you know a situation where you're just you know throwing out star players and you you win games. Um, and you know, a first year, a guy in his first year with a new team is going to have a lot more. I don't I don't want to say difficulty, but it's going to have a lot more kind of landmines to navigate around uh, because he he's never coached any of these guys before. Uh, even the players who were here last year, which there aren't that many <laughs> relatively, uh, he didn't coach. You know, so this is a learning experience for him. It's a learning experience for the players. And, you know, the the relationship between a organization and a coach uh, in today's NBA, you screw up one season you're done you know it, it it's that quick now no I, I think you're right that like you have to you like Sam and Gundy has to be thinking about the long game here like don't don't do anything crazy I mean like chasing wins this year because like yeah I mean you obviously love to be a playoff team and I mean it'd be a disappointment if you weren't a play-in tournament team but I mean ultimately you know no matter how bad things are like this is this is not a make or break year for you I mean I think really next year is like the first year the Pelicans will have real expectations, um, you know, with, with Zion Williamson and Brandon Aragon, where if you're not a play in playoff team, then like, that's a massive disappointment. And, you know, maybe we do need to look at, at making some serious changes, but that's not this year. Um, so I, I, th- I think you bring up a really good point there of just like taking the long view. Um, can we, can we just take a moment and, and talk about Brandon Ingram? Because I, I, I feel like it's worth mentioning. Um, I'm having, a hard time of just like making sense of the season that he's having. Because when I look at, you know, the stat line, uh, averaging 24, five and a half rebounds, 4.7 assists, doing it really, really efficiently. Like it looks fantastic, but something about it feels just kind of empty calories to me. I mean, he came out in that game against Detroit 12 and four in the first quarter. I mean, he's controlling the game and then just kind of disappeared in the second quarter I just I just feel like something is missing from, you know, your your max guy and a guy you you hope to be the face of the franchise. Well, I think one thing in particular is he and Zion don't really play that well off of each other. Um and you what I've noticed in the last, you know, few weeks especially is the staggering of their minutes. They really don't, they're not on the court together that much throughout the course of a game. When you talk about you have two uh, kind of entrenched star players, they're, they're not sharing the court that often, especially, you know, in the second and third quarters of games. Um, and so it's, it's not that Brandon Ingram isn't succeeding in the situations where he is the go-to guy or Zion, vice versa with him. It's that it's, you don't often see them both going off at the same time. Right. They, they just don't seem to be incorporated in the offense in a way that that is um, conducive to that. And I don't know what the solution is there, because you do want to, you know, feed Zion in the post and you want to make sure Brandon Ingram gets his shots up. But it feels like right now those two things happen, have to happen independently. Um, and I think when you see a guy disappear in a game like Brandon Ingram can and does, uh, I think that's a big part of why. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's part of it that at least at this stage of their career, they're not um, perfect fits together offensively. But then, you know, I, I look at the Pelicans and they're, I think, eighth in offensive efficiency. So, like, you know, as a whole, like, they're scoring the ball pretty well. Um, but, I mean, I agree that, like, it could it could definitely be better together. Um, that's that's probably my, my, my biggest complaint is there, there are just these long stretches in the game where – he just kind of fades. I mean, I think when things are going good, he's playing with with pace on the offensive end. Like he's he's passing the ball really well. I mean, we saw that in the first quarter. Like he can be a really good distributor at times. And I think you know when things aren't going well or things aren't going the Pelicans' way, he gets a little ball stoppy. Um, he gets maybe a little bit too mid range happy. Um, one of the things I was looking at last night was just. The percentage of shots he's taken at the the rim in his career, I mean, they've they've fallen and fallen and fallen since those Lakers days. I mean, forty four percent of his shots came within four feet of the basket his last season in Los Angeles. Only nineteen percent of his shots are coming within four feet of the basket this year. I mean, look, part of that is definitely because they have Zion Williamson and Steven Adams. Like there aren't a ton of open driving lanes. He's playing the three. He was playing the four last year. But I think there are times when he could either get all the way to the rim or just take the three and didn't have to take that really difficult 15, 17 footer, even though that's a shot he's good at. Yeah. And I think obviously his improvement uh, from the three point line is a part of why he's settling for those shots a lot more often. I think, I don't think those two things are disconnected, but yeah, I think he, it does seem like when he does decide to go to the rim, he gets there, right? He's got those long arms and he's able to dunk uh, on drives that I, I just assumed were not going to end in a dunk. If that makes sense, you know, you'll see him get into the paint and all of a sudden he's got the go-go gadget arms and uh, he has the ability to put pressure on the defense a lot more than he takes advantage of. Um, because while those 15 footers are nice and it's a great shot when you need it, you know, I think the defense is, is happy when you, uh, bail them out by not making them defend at the rim. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a good point. It, it, it just, it's just not flowing right now in the second half of games for whatever reason. And the, the issue is, you know, you want to get Brandon Inger more involved and, to do that, you ISO him and you give him, you know, space to work. And that takes everyone else out of the offense. And I think that's when you end up seeing these lulls where guys are disengaged. Um, and I don't know if, if a rotation change is going to fix that. I don't know if that's a schematic thing where you try to get him more involved in the pick and roll action. Um, but it's something's got to happen. You can't just completely fall off a cliff in the second half of game after game after game and and not change the way you're the way you're attacking. Yeah, I mean, I feel like adding one more creator to the mi- to the mix in the starting lineup could potentially help um like if you threw Kyra in there, I mean, I think that could help fix some things offensively and where, you know, it's not flowing through through Brandon that much and not quite as much as on his shoulders. Um, but I think a lot of it's on him. I mean, it's your five, you're the max guy. Like there's just a lot of responsibility that, that comes with that. And, uh, I, I mean, I think it's just gotta be a little bit better. Um, this last part of the show, let's, uh, can we talk about a positive, um, as bad as things seem right now? Can we talk about Zion Williamson who 
in the past 15 games looks every bit like the best prospect since Anthony Davis, which is a lot of what the draft heads were saying, you know, prior to the Pelicans taking him number one overall last year. Um, Here's numbers in the past 15, 26 points per game, 65% shooting, 77% from the line, 5.7 rebounds, 3.8 assists, um, nearly a steal and a block for game. Um, It's been, it's been absolutely unbelievable. I mean, he, he is really finding his rhythm. Um, They moved him on the ball a little bit more, but like, I mean, I, I just find myself a few times every game just like sitting back and and laughing. I mean, what he's doing is is ridiculous right now, in spite of, in spite of, uh, you know, all all of the up and down nature of the Pelican season. So he's better than Keldon Johnson. <laughs> is that what you're saying? That, that, I, I can't I, even remember. I think he was. might be better than Keldon Johnson. Someone, I think it uh, might be, someone went on Twitter and was like, Johnson. "I'd rather have Keldon Johnson." Like, well, would you? <laughs> Um, but no, he's just so good. It, and and I don't think he's even like close to, to reaching, uh, you know, his ceiling at all. Like, and it's and that's the incredible part is he's actually, in my opinion, incredibly limited and still so incredibly good. The playmaking specifically has been good to see, but I've been more impressed with the free throw shooting um, because that's always going to be a big thing for him, you know. Joel Embiid is a great NBA player. What makes him elite is the fact that you foul him and he's going to hit 85, 88% of his free throws. I think he might be a little lower than that. I think he might be like 81 right now. And that's that's kind of what elevates you to being unstoppable in the NBA. If teams know that they can throw you at the line and you're going to hit 50, 60%, they're going to do that. They're going to take you out of your rhythm. And, you know, it's it's a net win for the other team. They don't have to defend you, and they know that you're not going to make your shots consistently. 77% uh, as a second-year player, that is elite free-throw shooting from his position and the way he plays. Um, So, yeah, there's always going to be room for improvement on the defensive side of the ball, I think. He needs to be a better rebounder. Um, I think he doesn't get involved in the defensive glass nearly as often as he probably should be. Uh, but yeah, I mean, on the offensive side of the ball, there's, you know, it's, it's hard to find too many issues to, to nitpick with. Here's the number one rule about watching Zion Williamson. He will find a way to turn everything into layup. I mean, everything always ends in a layup for him. There was a play play against the Mavericks where they tried to get him the ball in the post and it got deflected and popped up in the air. And you just look at the ball at its high point and there are three Mavericks close to it. And then there's Zion Williamson, like three or four feet away. Guess who got the ball? It was Zion Williamson. There was a play in the first quarter against Detroit where they tried to make an entry pass to him. It looked like it was going right to Isaiah Stewart. I mean, Isaiah Stewart was in position to make the interception. Zion just like teleports in front of him, gets the ball, and and finishes like this kind of running left-handed shot um, Is right that the in the one, middle. Uh, of the where lane. Josh Hart got kind of like caught in the air. I think it might have been. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it might have been. I mean, every like his ability to just go get the ball in traffic or in space is just kind of insane. And, you know, I think we've really seen like the point Zion thing take off since the Indiana game. That's, that's really the first game I can remember where like even to start quarters, he's bringing the ball up the court and being kind of this de facto point guard. I think that is a good move from, from Stan Van Gundy. I think Zion clearly enjoys playing that way. 
Um, that was the way he played, um, you know, in middle school when his mother was his coach at the beginning of high school. I mean, it's kind of the way he played before he like became too big to be the team's point guard and they shifted him onto the wing or inside. Um, so I, I think, you know, the Pelicans are only going to be, uh, better for it. Um, as long as they keep allowing that to be a part of their offense. I mean, teams, teams are just so scared of him when he drives the ball, like just watch the way teams pinch in when, you know, they can tell he's, he's driving the basketball. I mean, Pelicans are going to get a lot of open threes, uh, you know, by continuing to play that way. Yeah. I mean, I've said this before, this Pelicans team is built around Zion and Brandon Ingram. And regardless of what happens this season, if Zion continues to elevate his game and turns into, you know, or continues to be a NBA superstar in terms of averaging close to 30 points a game and expanding the parts of his game and improving the parts of his game that uh, he needs to, then regardless of what happens this season, the franchise is going to look at this as a victory (laughs) because he's the guy, he's the star that you need to kind of pin your kite to and and rise with it. Uh, And so far it's looking like that's the case. Um, And going into this season, you had to wonder about health. You had to wonder about longevity, how long it would take him to get to those minutes uh, to, you know, average 30 plus minutes a game. And none of that has been an issue. Um, And, Good for him. You know, it's easy to forget how frustrating last year was, especially for him uh, coming into this with all these expectations and not being able to play for the first half of the season, having to deal with the minutes restrictions. Like, this has been probably the second most frustrating season of Zion Williamson's career, Uh, but at least he's getting to play. So it's, it's easy to look at this team with all of the negativity of saying, man, they're inconsistent, they're losing games. Uh, But if you kind of step back and kind of take the long view, I think there's a lot more positives than negatives right now. Yeah, I'm I'm just thinking about bursts and and how much people hated bursts. Um, how many bursts angry emails, fan, angry emails I would get from fans. I mean, I had I had people even at like the newspaper like hitting like emailing me and be like, what like what is the deal with these bursts? And like people who I don't even think you know watch basketball that much, and that I'm not like you know saying that like it's a bad thing, but like people are just coming out of the woodwork and be like bursts. You know who hated the bursts the most? Zion. Zion Williamson hated that, man. He hated playing that way. I mean, I I think he's just, I think he's happy to just like get to play basketball like untethered this year. Um, To me, it looks like he's, he's played his way into better shape. I mean, I actually think he's moving around on defense a little bit better uh, the past couple of games than he had earlier in the season. Um, I think he's, I think he's slowly getting there and and you're right. I mean, it shouldn't be understated just how strange and challenging the start of his career was. I mean, to to be out the first three months of the season, then have to play like you know, 20, 25 minutes a night in these four minute stints. That was uh that was not fun for him. I mean, that that guy, he loves to play basketball and it was not fun for him. And uh, I'm glad I think he's having a little bit of fun even though the pelicans are are kind of stinking it up but uh i'm glad he could just do his thing and and not have to worry about oh my four minutes are up 
<laughs> Hopefully I can do enough in these four minutes for people to uh, not send me angry tweets. But I, and, and the funny thing about it is like, we talk about it like, oh, we're back to business as usual with Zion. It's like, oh yeah, just deal with this pandemic. You know, deal with deal with this uh, whole weird situation uh, that for him is like the closest thing he's gotten to play like a normal season. Um, but yeah, I, I, the the results have not been have not been what you want, and I'm sure that's frustrating for him too because he's not the type of guy that's going to look at it. It's like, well, I got 26, uh, but I think to some extent it has to be. His finishing ability is like absolutely insane. It's like 99 over 100 or 100 out of 100. And I think a lot of people think that's like so much of that is to do with that athleticism. I'm not here to tell you that it's not, but his touch is incredible, man. I mean, he has got soft touch at the rim. Um, and it that that is a really, really special part of his game. I mean, I think just the touch is almost, as, I'm, I'm not going to say it's as special as the athleticism because, I mean, come on. Like, like a dude that's touched by the hand of God, but yeah, he's, he's not an unskilled guy. I mean, there's, there's skill there, even if there is plenty to work on. One thing that I always get caught off guard by when I, you know, when you actually like pay attention to it, he has, he does not have long arms. (laughs) You know, you look at the guys he's playing with and you look at Brandon Ingram who, you know, his standing reach is like what, seven foot five, you know, Zion's like arms are very proportional to his body. He's not a tall guy by NBA standards and is not a particularly long-armed guy by NBA standards. Yet he's still able to use angles uh, probably better than most because he's able to get in position. And I think that's that's been impressive to me is seeing how he's able to finish um, because everyone knows he can get out in the open court and he can jump out of the gym. Uh, but the way he's able to get his shots up and not get blocked, he doesn't get blocked very often for a guy that's only 6'6". And uh, I think that's that's one of the more impressive things when you see him, he's going in the paint against seven footers <laughs> at six foot six, and uh, he's able to get his shots off the glass and get and and make them at a astounding rate. But he go fourteen of fifteen uh, against uh, who was it? Dallas. Dallas. Pretty efficient, right? <laughs> That's Pretty efficient nuts. numbers. Yeah, that makes no sense. Yeah, I think one of the things he does well, um, to your point about you know not getting a shot blocked that often, he's really good at like getting his body into bigger players kind of on the way up or before, you know, he's like um, f- jumped fully. And I think that, you know, takes away their ability to rise with him. Like he's he's good at using his size to prevent his shot from getting blocked, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it, it does. Because it's really not that hard to envision. You know, if you give a guy space and he can go up and target the ball, it's going to get that block. When you kind of knock him off his spot and uh, take away that um, that area, He's not able to. And Zion's, the, the comment I always make when I see Zion at the free throw line is just like, his shoulders are the size of my entire upper body, like one of his shoulders. It's insane how big his shoulders are compared to a normal human being. Uh, and he uses them very effectively. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if that guy's coming at you down down the lane, just get out of the way. That's my advice. Just clear, clear your path. Yeah, I wouldn't be taking a charge, but... <laughs> All right. Well, I, I think we're going to leave it at that today. Don't take a charge against Zion Williamson. That's our that's our free advice. Or take one, and that will be the only one. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the uh, Pelicans' um, assistant or player development guys last year actually got his nose broken in practice by Zion, like quickly, um, kind of like pivoting or something like that. Um, 
yeah, I believe that was a thing. I would have to, I would have to confirm that, but yeah, I've, I've heard that one. Um, so yeah, get out of the way, get out of the way. All right, guys. Well, we appreciate you for listening. Um, we will talk to you again next week. Peace out.